Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Connected Sounds. So we're now coming to the end of season one of Connected Sounds and during this episode I wanted to do a catch-up of the best bits that we have had so far. We really have had some amazing artists and I feel very grateful to have interviewed and just to hear the stories of people from around the world. So without further ado, I will roll the clips. My first chat was with the fabulous Quinn Christopherson. It's tough. It it is honestly tough. Like, not but so recently was a bathroom bill on the ballot excluding trans people from using the using the restroom. Like, like they wanted me to use the women's restroom. And I can tell you right now, if I go into the women's restroom, I'm going to be making people uncomfortable. I don't fit in there, you know? And I mean, I don't know which bathroom I fit in, but it just feels like it shouldn't have been up for debate, you know, like my human rights over something as silly as a restroom. Like, and the vote was so close. I mean, the song is, I'll just say, it's about, you know, like my role as a transgender individual and like, kind of the feelings that I had about how like the society's perception of me changed and how I was like treated differently and like I don't even say transgender like on an interview or talking to people because it's a scary word for a lot of people still. I'll say LGBT because that's accepted for like a lot of people right now is LGBT is like Okay, yeah, I know gay people. But once I say that like transgender word, it's it shuts people off. It scares people. Um definitely white passing. Like my skin is white, you know, like but that's something that was different, you know, while I was growing up, like from my family and my sisters and my mom, you know, like I was kinda like the odd one out and I've been Native my whole life, you know, my family's been Native, like, nobody can take my culture away from me, you know, and only thing I can do is pass it on to my nieces and nephews, and, like, that's, that's where our values are. Being perceived as just, like, a butch, lesbian, like, masculine woman, to me, like, was fine, right? And then once, like, okay, now I'm, like, passing as, like, this cis man, like you said, I didn't realize how how hard it was as a masculine woman. Like, I wasn't living my life as a masculine woman. Like, this sucks. <laughs> but once I am now perceived as this, like, cis man, it was like, whoa, like, y'all were so mean <laughs> before. I would say playing songs like Erase Me every night on tour is something I didn't do because it was scary. I didn't trust the crowd because I don't know who's out there, especially when I'm opening for people. I think it was totally different if like I'm headlining a gig and y'all are showing up for me, but I'm out here opening for people and I'm like, I don't know who's in the crowd. She goes, so... Are you not going to be able to play music at Pride anymore? <laughs> 
because you know I have <laughs> because I have a partner, a woman who's a who's a woman, and like so now, like in her mind, we're like straight. You're out. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, "Well, your pride days are over." <laughs> And she's like asking you in tears. No, <laughs> I'm like no. I think like I'm the T in LGBT. Like yeah, I'm still good. And she was like, oh, okay, good, because I love those <laughs> shows. Next in store, we have self esteem, also known as Rebecca Lucy Taylor. Men hate the idea that we could come, <laughs> and like, and it, there's no, there's not much scientific. Uh, research no they don't know like literally you google it and it's like may might be and it and i'm like i i don't think it is i would drink more water if it was so i'm always really passionate about that i mean the amount of dinner parties i've been at with so-and-so's douche boyfriend's friend and i get into it with them about squirt (laughs) we never turned a show down apart from a wombat support tour (laughs) was the only thing we turned down yeah, and I love the Wombats, actually. I think they're really wicked, like, really, really fucking good at what they do. And I and I was up for it, but we played one show with them. And, of, like, absolute classic, like, I got heckled because they were really laddie band. Mm-hmm. There was just, like, so much heckling about me and my boobs and, like, blah, blah, blah. And I, I was just like, I just don't want to do this. And I really want, like, I'm so passionate about, like, domestic violence and, like, femicide and stuff like that. And I really want to push a sort of... I think I think what we've experienced certainly recently is mm-hmm. men realizing something they didn't realize before is that like how frightening it is every day to be a woman and like and us going on about wanting equal rights and stuff like that is one thing and then the other one is everything I all my behaviors you can trace back to a lot of my I say me as in like I, I guess I'm just a woman in the world but like I'm frightened all the time like and it, and it bleeds into general like how streetwise I am or how confident I am to go anywhere and then it goes into my relationships or you know my experiences certainly with men where it's like did I want to do that or was I scared to say no or um, you're always so there will always be this thing this fear if you make a documentary and you're going to get like, you know, 10 Ben's watching it going, oh, that's not me. I don't go out raping people. And then they, turn, you know, switch over happy in the knowledge that they're not the problem. But it's all the small and nuanced stuff, the micro sexism, the constant sort of sexualization of, of you. Mm-hmm. As, uh, that's what adds up and becomes the problem. So I'm kind of, I don't know, it was a really long answer, but I think my next MO is a bit less fun. <laughs> and it's a bit more about trying to educate because I also don't hate men. Like I like loads of them. Like <laughs> I think it's more about having a conversation that explains and, and, and encourages some sort of empathy from men. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that would be amazing. I think it's, it's completely true. It does affect all aspects of your life. It affects leaving the house going to work, walking down the street, like even the day-to-day things of a group of boys or men shouting at you about something about your appearance or not fitting into society, whatever it may be. I mean, my my thing has kind of always been like, if I was going to date a guy, which is very unlikely, even though I'm pansexual, it's very unlikely, but if I was, I would want them to be like smaller than me or 
like not very muscular or this or that because I'm scared of them for like internally. It's horrible. It's, yeah, and also I think uh, for me, like I, bit, this is a whole other podcast to be honest. But like where I grew up, like in the nineties or whatever, I remember turning sort of fourteen and suddenly like going to Meadowall with my mom became this uh, different experience. I wasn't. I was still a child, but people would look at me and say mm. things, and men and and this weird. I think it's probably very different now for teenage girls or whatever. Maybe it isn't, I don't know. But this sort of shift into like um, adulthood before you're ready because of what your body's doing. Like I just had this like great big woman's body like way too soon. And I, and it, you know, and, and it forced a sort of speeding up of my speed. Yeah, I sort of had to speed up and, and, and loads of anxiety that I wasn't doing it right. And uh, and uh, I've got, like I said, I'm kind of not very eloquent on this yet, but I remember thinking, I'm not doing it right. I need to be having sex or I need to be like, and wanting attention from men was like validation much sooner than I, A, want, should have, and B, like, uh, I don't think that's, no. there was no way to know that that wasn't what I wanted. And then it's like mm -hmm. a few, I don't know if this makes sense, but like, mm -hmm quite a few, you know, all my teens and twenties being like, yay, he looked at me, yay, I got catcalled. It was almost like that, like a sort of like a very confused relationship to what it meant and equality at all. And I'm like late to the party to go, hang on a minute, fuck that. Uh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. That frightens me. This isn't fair. Like all those feelings are only just making sense to me because I was sort of like fed a kind of weird narrative where like it was positive if people looked at you and and the alternative to uh, not being happy with the compliments can be quite dangerous uh -huh. so it's like yeah okay yeah compliments are fine that's better than being called a fat ugly bitch or whatever or like being punched in the face yeah that's so true you you make you weigh it up don't you every time it's like is it worth it what's the what neither of them are great but what's the what's less bad you know what I mean? I think like this obsession with being completed by another human is is really fucked up. Mm -hmm. And I love going out with people. I love it. I love love. I love sex. I love all my relationships. I consider loads of my friendships are like they're as important as romance to me. They are the loves of my life. Like I really, this isn't me sort of saying like be alone or you're a loser. Um, I'm not saying it's. I think life's really long and there's loads of there's loads of love and experiences to have and just oh to make you feel shit for not having like one person that's been with you for years we have shardine taylor stone oh both taylors and shardine is part of the band big journey I think it can be easy to think as, as punk as being political because obviously it sounds angry, so people that, that's what people think it is a lot of the time. To me, I think the sort of heart of it is still that outsider, that person who doesn't feel that they quite fit in with the mainstream. And that's the voice of, you know, that creates that punk sound, that fuck you sort of attitude. But for Big Joni, you know, we call ourselves a black feminist punk band. And I think people think that we're going to be singing about Audrey Lord or something like that, which seems ridiculous to me when people think that. It's like, why am I going to do that? It's a bit naff. And so I think when we call ourselves a black feminist punk band, it's very much like we are black feminists. 
And so naturally our band is like that. You know, there was this person that made a did a review about us that described us as soulful. When we were cracking up, it was like we do not sound soulful at all. Like we there's nothing going on there that's soulful. What you saw was two black women three black women and then you just thought soul <laughs> and then that was it. When actually, you know, a better comparison would be like the raincoats or sleet kidney. Well, I mean, it's questionable whether we want to actually even call it working class. So a lot of that punk scene in the 70s, a lot of them were art students and they were from Bromley. So they were kind of like low middle class, really kind of art school kids. Same as in um, the US. I mean, what white working class kids were doing in the 70s and the 80s, they were mostly into, there was this whole teddy boy revival that happens in the 70s and skinheads. That's what those kids were doing. But, um... You know, I mean, it goes back to, I mean, what, what, what is punk? Is it a genre? Is it an attitude? Is it a scene? I mean, if you're thinking of it as an attitude, then of course, a DIY thing. Of course, black people have always been punk in that sense. Yet people feel like they can't express that overtly because then that would sort of throw them out of blackness. The other people who are sort of bought into this idea of a scene and brought into this idea of punk and what punk is. Like, punk is, you know, Johnny Rotten and Bloody Sid Vicious and, you know, and they've bought into that imagery. Then they're not going to get what we're doing. But then I would say those people were never punks anyway. Those people are followers. So, you know, like I said about the women, woman in the bunk, the band of all men, it is that sort of... She has to be pretty, she has to be a sex symbol. You know, it can be very talented and brilliant, but they're sort of away, they're isolated away from other women. So your interaction with them becomes, you ever want to be them because, you know, you want people to fancy you or whatever. Or if you're a bloke, then you fancy them a bit. And then like the other side, you know, with a sort of one of the boys thing, Again, that sort of takes away from, it isolates you in a different way. So it becomes like, well, you know, permission to be in a band. Particularly like within the context of the 70s, which was a very sort of gendered society. You know, these bands were sort of playing around with gender norms. So it's quite interesting to think as, as punk got bigger and more mainstream and in a sense more commercialised that we started to see the sort of gender roles become more fixed to reflect how it is within pop music. Next on the lineup is Kindness, also known as Adam Bainbridge. Slightly intimidated by these gatekeeper people, then coming back five years later and just realizing like all of them are just clowns. <laughs> like you have to see them as just another guy and take away their sort of industry power in some ways um, because. Like, especially now that I'm older, I'm like, half of them have no clue. They don't know what they're talking about. Like, it's just... Like, especially white men in the industry have a tendency to just copy what their other white friend in the industry is saying. There's not a lot of independent thinking going on. The only time I got a manager in this in the second version of my career was when the NME was, like, blackmailing me that they were going to reveal my identity and they'd, like, done all this research and... If I didn't agree to like a full feature with photographs, they were going to like run this expose. It is as nepotistic and 
incestuous and like as wrong as you think it is like it really is as bad and if not worse am i the only one this happens to like am i just imagining white supremacy in the music industry or no you're not imagining it, it exists and yes like every white man with an expense account in london is literally just doing group sync with all of the other anrs and like so I've decided to divest from whiteness and this is how I'm going to do it. Like I'm going to break off from all of my contacts with my white friends and then like sort of stop interacting with certain co-workers. And I was just like, wow, this is intense, but really interesting. <laughs> Look, if you're going to be offended, you're going to be offended. Um, it's that thing, people that are offended by people talking about racism is just like, why are you offended? Like there are people experiencing racism which is exponentially worse than the offense you're taking at, at it being raised as a as a societal issue like in the same way like if i i don't have to exhaustively like catalog the ways that whiteness has harmed me or my family but i can if you want and at the end of it you might have a fairly like reasonable understanding as to why um just moving myself away from it. I'm not, like, I, I just said, I have two wonderful close friends um, who are white men. They are truly like an exception because white men are ultimately the thing that I avoid the most in the world. Um, but I have white women friends, I have white trans friends, white queer friends. Um, I work with amazing white artists like Robin and Jesse. like these people are close friends of mine. Um, that I love dearly. And yet, again, I think part of that friendship and that relationship is that they know that they're part of a white supremacist culture and they would never shirk from admitting that. Like, they would talk about it and talk about their privilege and the ways that they can um, sort of use that to get to a better place. The people that I have no time for are the people that are like, everything's fine, you know? It's like the dog in the burning room being like, this is fine. Like, mm -hmm. literally, if all the shit that's happened in the world in the past 10 years isn't enough for you as a white person to feel a sense of urgency, then no, I'm, I don't have time for you. Like, I also have a mixed race perspective. Like, if, like I both have a, a very fair-skinned, white-passing, light-skinned privilege. It's, so some people just literally want to go into a room and be like, let's make a banger, and make a banger. And I... I've never understood this thing of like going into writing a song with someone cold where you literally don't know the person that you're working with. I'm like, let's, we need to have a chat at the very minimum. We need to have a chat and a cup of tea or a coffee or go for a walk before we like knuckle down to the business of song making. Now, if you don't have your book deal and your Netflix series and you're not like on the cover of Teen Vogue at 28, like you, you failed women in the industry have to fight so hard to keep going beyond the mid-30s, like so, so hard. And then broadsheet newspapers or even magazines like Gentlewoman, or they'll always situate a woman's achievements in relation to how old she is now. That reaction. Because I'm old and I preferred being like ambiguous. All of the people of colour who taught on pop music were casualised workers. None of us had full-time positions and they never hire people of colour for full-time positions or lectureships. Wow. The status quo has co-opted and learned the vocabulary of racial justice, but it doesn't believe in it. So now what's really fucked up is that you have like white supremacist people quoting 
like affirmative action back to you or like talking about allyship and I'm just like about why South Asian people weren't visible in music for example and part of it in the states was a class position like immigration it meant that all South Asians who'd emigrated to America um, had to be wealthy and professional and in turn wealthy and professional people don't often encourage their kids to go into music. Apartheid was sort of creeping in and increasing as the like increasingly white supremacist governments were elected in South Africa. It was when um, all of the ANC people were in exile and maybe before Mandela had been captured. And my grandma had been allowing a family friend to do kind of anti-state stuff, um, using her car, using her typewriter, using storage at the house. So her and Timor, um, this young activist were arrested. Um, they were both interrogated. He was killed during the interrogation and only recently the state has been held responsible for that. And eventually she was found guilty. Uh, she was tried and imprisoned for five years, part of which she served with Winnie Mandela in a women's political wing of a women's prison. Followed by Danae Moore. Modern dreads about the kind of modern day anxieties of being alive in this you know, very perplexing time of the kind of influx of endless information and personal turmoil <laughs> and just kind of a lot of inner war that you're just like, you didn't necessarily want to see the visual of someone dying, you know, first thing in the morning when you've woken up. It's a lot, I think. It can be a lot. Art is beautiful, but it is taxing emotionally <laughs> and this record, I think, maybe hit people in the same way because I think we all feel in that dread about the world and how it functions. And I think as an artist, I feel like it's a little bit my responsibility to lean into all of those feelings I have every day and try my best to not feel, you know, afraid. But in the Jamaica, there's definitely more of a sense of sharing and like, you know, especially because, you know, I grew up with a lot of um, different kinds of fruit and veg trees in my garden um a lot of amazing produce but um there's a sense of sharing if you go to someone's house you bring a couple of mangoes if it's mango season or you know there's that part of it that i think out of a kind of capitalistic world is different and also the capitalistic desires are different when you live in a country that isn't necessarily i think that is taught behavior it's taught to you know, then want to monetize and have that kind of extreme thing. And I think definitely when you go to the cities, when I go to New York, I feel that. I feel the weight of like being in the like epicenter of like money. <laughs> like when I go to LA, it's the same things. I think unless you've formed like genuine friendships in LA, <laughs> it feels like it's actually too, I can't be there for too long because literally it's, exhausting it becomes exhausting to be that performative all the time and I don't want to perform I just want to like make cool things and connect with people in a genuine way but a lot of people aren't programmed that way and I think that's not because you know that says something necessarily about them it's just how we function I think I've just grown up quite lucky with very loving and accepting parents so I think my world you know my family my core they're all like very accepting of of me but I do think culturally in the kind of Caribbean world there tends to be a lot of homophobia in you know just culturally but I think that's changing it's amazing to see how culture has changed how people are becoming more accepting 
And now we move to Tom Aspel. I feel, I, I think this is quite common for, for gay men at least, is that there's like a, a delay. So they have like a really wild 20s because they kind of weren't allowed to or weren't comfortable enough to sort of, or they didn't find their people or they were sort of living in a small town, you know. So by the time they do get to somewhere where they feel like they can be themselves, then it's like an explosion. And How was that your first studio session? Sugar Babes is your first. That's crazy. I know. You tell me. I honestly, to this day, like probably one of the weirdest situations because I was a massive fan of the Sugar Babes. It was like a bit, a bit of a dream come true. And I didn't know how studio sessions really worked. So I rocked up to the studio with like a big bag of sweets because I was like, I'll just bring some presents because like, like, I'll just bring them something just, you know, to like sweeten the deal. Um, I spent a week with them, um, literally a, an intense week. And it was it was so hard because we weren't allowed. I wasn't allowed to tell anyone because it was all very secretive at the time. What was your mindset during that week then? Oh, God, I thought I was like, I, I genuinely thought I'd made it at that point. Like, I'm not going to lie. I was like, yeah, you know, here I am with the sugar babes. But the reality of the music industry is that you you can do a session with these people and you can enjoy it and love every minute. But then there are things out of your control. For instance, when you sign a publishing deal, you get a lot of money and then they tell you to go into different studios to write with different people and you do that five days a week you write five songs a week that's like what 20 songs a month like it's draining so you're doing that all the time in the 0.001% chance that you're going to get a hit you know what I mean you're doing that with that in your mind and so that leaves very little time for your own artistic creativity or space even just space in your head like it was very hard to then switch off from the songwriting and, and be the artist um and I was really I was complicit I wasn't being told what to do I was agreeing with it because I thought it's always been weird for me having like that out outside perspective and then having like you know my mom's family and hearing from them and what they're like and I do you know I always I always think you know whenever travelers leave somewhere and they leave rubbish and things like that I always think you only ever hear of that but pe- there are there are people travelers leaving sites all the time completely pristine and perfect but you don't hear that reported you know that and maybe that you only ever hear about the bad ones and i'm just like you only have to look at the park whenever it's a sunny day like there's no difference people litter across all communities mikey walsh i was talking to him actually around about the time of the trespassing bill And he, like, the effect it was having on him was huge. It was awful because, you know, here's someone who's brought up in the community and, you know, travelled around and to see his lifestyle basically being um, legislated against. And the way he put it was, like, they were just basically trying to eliminate that race of people. Being used as an election device is is the worst thing in the world, I think. Just as a scapegoat for everyone else's problems, that's pretty much the theme, the theme of the day. I don't think there's going to be a change in this generation. It's just going to take a really long time incrementally. But if they're legislating to stop trespassing, then more or less 
they're all going to be settled soon. And ending with Erin Ray. But please, this clip, let's hope it doesn't get copyrighted. Please don't get copyrighted. Please don't get copyrighted. Please don't get copyrighted. Depending on what town I'm in, in the South, or like what the venue is like, is this going to be received? How, like, how is this going to be received? But, you know, in that case, it's kind of like, that's not up to me to, to control. And before we go more into Bad Mind, can you kind of tell the listeners what the premise of the song, I suppose? So, yeah, this song, I grew up in the South, I grew up in Tennessee. It's, the song is basically about just reckoning with, I've, I've had a, like, starting from a fairly young age, like, was afraid to be gay. Like, before I even was at the age of understanding like who I was attracted to. It was like right around that time because I I had been around, you know, been in Jackson, Tennessee and it was like the era of like people calling things gay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And my my mom's sister uh, lost custody of her daughter who was my same age in the 90s, uh, like on the grounds of like in it was the state of Alabama on the grounds of it, of the state not seeing our homosexual lifestyle as like appropriate to expose a child to and so you know I, there was I just heard there was like a, it went all the way to the Alabama Supreme Court and I heard a lot about it from like ages like six or seven to you know my whole life she lost custody of my cousin she Never got to wake up at her house on Christmas. She like could only visit when my aunt's partner uh, was away. Like she would have to leave the house uh, for the weekend when she would come for visits. And so, you know, I think there was just like a hyper vigilance that formed. And so, as like a mid twenties, you know, version of myself, fast forward. Yeah, bad mind is like me literally basically praying (laughs) to just like release and like acknowledge and release the the spheres and allow like true feelings to surface there was this time where I was passing a note back and forth to my uh, fifth grade boyfriend Antonio and You remember the name. Yes. And um, she snatched it up. I was passing it back to him. And he was like, in the note, okay, this is like, (laughs) in the note, he was like, do you want to have sex? (laughs) And I was like, nine. Was that the note? Yes. So that's obviously a big one. Very forward. Yes, very forward. Um, (laughs) Clearly, like, we weren't hanging out after, like, outside of school or, like, other we were just boyfriend and girlfriend in name only and I wrote back and I was like no well maybe (laughs) and miss miss teacher snatched it up and she was like if I knew well obviously clearly it's like that was a big I don't know she was worried but she what her what she said was if I knew that my daughter was talking about having sex with a black boy like I was just like what was your initial thought of being nine years old and that I mean we see racism in all different ways and um, I think it comes out in all different ways as well in the sense of our memories and our minds and it's so subconscious some of the time Uh, 
for a nine-year-old that maybe that was one of the first um, very obvious encounters of racism. Do you remember what your mindset was at the time? Well, I think I was like in total like like shame blackout. <laughs> so I was just like of being, you know, having my note read and obviously I didn't know what I was talking about. I but I, you know, just so just being embarrassed. So that was like a to, you know, the overarching theme of that memory, but that it was like her that and another couple things from her specifically, like she wouldn't let um, black kids sit in her rocking chair. Um, yeah. And sorry, just to clarify that it was a primarily um, black school or? Yeah. And so she was, she a, was, she was a white teacher, yeah. Um, teaches yeah. honeysuckle vines. All them Georgia voters stood in all day lines. Ooh, tell me you have been listening to Connected Sounds with myself, Maya Kelly, and some amazing guests, including Kindness, also known as Adam Bainbridge, Quinn Christopherson, Shardine Taylor Stone, Erin Ray, Self Esteem, also known as Rebecca Lucy Taylor, Danae Moore, and Tom Asphalt. Recording and making Connected Sounds has honestly been amazing, and speaking to so many artists from around the world has been such a brilliant experience, especially during lockdown. But anyway, I will love you and leave you and hopefully see you at season two of Connected Sounds. Au revoir.